Ephesians chapter 6. And as I said, we will be closing out the book of Ephesians today. It's tempting, of course, to stretch it into a few more weeks, but I'm going to resist that temptation, recognizing that should the Lord tarry, I will have other opportunities to teach Ephesians and that I don't have to do it all at one time. That is a word for me, not for you, because I need to encourage myself in that fact. All right, Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10, as we have for the last uh, month or so. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak but that you may also know my affairs and know how I am doing. Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all, or grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning and as we open the scriptures this morning and as we look into the epistle of Ephesians this morning and, and, and hear once more about the full armor of God, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would drive home into our hearts and minds those things which you have for us, Lord, I pray that your rhema, that spoken active word would penetrate our hearts this morning and that we would receive it by your spirit. Lord, cause that word that is planted in our hearts to take root there, to dig down deep roots into good soil that it might rise up and bear fruit for your kingdom. Lord, we have enlisted in the army of God. We are soldiers, Lord, in your service, and you have equipped us for battle. Lord, we come to you this morning asking for our marching orders. Direct us, guide us, deliver us from sin and iniquity. Lord, purge us even from secret sin and cleanse our hearts this morning. We confess our sins to you. 
we receive from you the forgiveness of our sins and thank you for cleansing us as you have promised you would do. Lord, you have prepared our hands for battle. You have equipped us with your armor and you have strengthened us with your might. Help us, Lord, to walk and to war in the reality of the calling with which we have been called. May you be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we've talked about the armor over these last weeks and months, and and we've talked about each piece individually. We've talked about the belt of truth with which our waists are girded and the breastplate of righteousness that guards our hearts and minds. We have talked about having feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? It is the good news of Jesus Christ that God sent his son Jesus to make a way for us to be at peace with him. So we've talked about that. We've talked about taking up the shield of faith with which we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. We've talked about the helmet of salvation. In other words, having that mind of Christ active in our lives and recognizing that this world is not our home, but that we belong to a kingdom that is far greater than any we have ever seen. We've talked about taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word, the rhema of God. And now we come to this last section that many would say is not actually a part of the armor. It's, it's not compared to a piece of armor. There's no metaphor that ties it to some piece of equipment. But you see, it's part of the same sentence that spoke of taking up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. It's a continuation of that thought. It isn't so much that prayer is the armor. Prayer is what we do with the armor. So many times people think that prayer is that which has prepared us for battle, but the reality is prayer actually is the battle, right? Satan doesn't care sometimes it seems about our preaching. He doesn't care about our doctrine or our philosophy. He'll let us do what we want to do in those regards, but you start to try to pray and you're messing with his world. Prayer is the battle. Prayer is the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. Now, it would be absolutely ridiculous for me to think that I can provide you with an exhaustive teaching on the topic of prayer in the 45 minutes that I'm going to allow myself this morning. So don't think for a moment that everything that can or should or even needs to be said about prayer is going to be presented to you in the framework of this morning's service. There's just no way I can do that. It's too broad a subject. We could spend just as much time on the topic of prayer as we've already spent on the full armor of God and still not be done with it. So please understand that this is, if anything, simply an introduction to the topic that we should all make our study over the course of a lifetime. Amen? But as I look at the text, I see that Paul, starting in verse 17, said, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance 
may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so Paul is saying, listen, take up that helmet, take up that shield, take up that sword and get to praying. Be praying. In fact, pray for all the saints. And you know what? While you're at it, pray for me. And here's my specific prayer request. This is what I want you to pray for me about. So we're going to look at, at several of the things that, that Paul has referenced in regards to prayer. But first, I want to establish the reality that prayer is indeed part of our warfare. And in order to do that, I want to use a biblical example from the Old Testament. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, the book of Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Now the children of Israel have escaped from Egypt. The Lord has led them through the wilderness across the Red Sea. The armies of Egypt are drowned behind them and they are on their way to the promised land. And as they are headed out to the promised land in verse eight of chapter 17, we find that now Amalek, that's the name of a group of people, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand, the staff with which God had done the miraculous and mighty works. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy so that they took a stone and put it under him. In other words, they gave him something to sit on and he sat upon it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Go ahead and turn back to Ephesians chapter six. So here we have a battle that is being fought. And if we were thinking about the importance of fighting a battle, we think who is gonna have the most significant role in that battle? I don't know, maybe it's the archers. You know, the archers, they, they get that long range weapon going on. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's the infantry down there with, with their swords and their spears forming that shield wall ready to fight. Or maybe it's the cavalry, you know, as they, as they go out to, to take care of the battle uh, against the enemy with the horse and the chariot. Well, you know what? None of those are what mattered most. What mattered was the air support, amen? Air support is like prayer support. It is a long range weapon that wipes out the enemy before you even engage in the battle, amen? And so we, as believers, need to be engaging in prayer support for those who are actually doing the work of the ministry. There's a story that I've heard on numerous occasions of a time when, uh, uh, when, when, 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon was, was giving a tour to some people of the tabernacle there in London where he ministered and where hundreds and thousands of people came to the Lord over the course of his ministry, a powerful ministry if ever there was one. And as he was taking them, he, he went through this room and uh, down through this hallway in the basement and there was this room and he says, this is what we call the, the boiler room or the war room. They, he opened the door and he says, this is where the people are praying during the service. You see, while Spurgeon was preaching, there were people down in that room praying for the preaching of God's word. His preaching was supported by prayer support, amen? There was warfare that was going on even as the gospel was being proclaimed. You see, prayer isn't just something we do before the battle. Prayer is the battle. That's where we engage in the fight, and that's why it was so vital that we recognize that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty and spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. We engage the enemy today with spiritual weapons. That's why when Paul says in Ephesians 6, listen, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The challenges you face in life, the people who oppose you, the difficulties that you face, the temptations that you've got to fight through, these are not just a physical attack. These are a spiritual attack that come from the enemy. You know what I find? And I'm going to speak very plainly about my own circumstances in my own life for a moment, though not specifically. I find that when I am tempted to sin, the only times I ever really lose are the times that I fail to engage the enemy. The only times I ever lose are the times when I don't even pick up my sword. That's how we are defeated. When the battle comes, rather than taking up our weapons and engaging in the battle, we simply stand down and allow the enemy to have his way with us. That's when we lose. If we will simply stand firm in the promises of God, take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, humbling ourselves before God and just resist the devil, guess what's gonna happen? Every time, he's gonna flee from us. But the times that we lose, the times that we fail, the times that we stumble and fall are not the times that we resist. They're the times that we choose not to resist. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul points out several things relating to this exhortation to pray. In verse 18, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Let's talk about what he's saying there. When we pray, we bring the power of heaven to bear in the circumstances of this life. So the question is, when do we need to have the power of heaven brought to bear in the circumstances of this life? And the answer is, all the time, right? What does he mean when he says, praying always and with all prayer. Well, he means very simply that there is no time and there is no place where prayer is not appropriate. 
To say that we are to pray without ceasing is not to say that we are to let every word that comes out of our mouth, it's like, oh, I can't, no, I can't talk right now, I'm praying. No, no, I'm sorry, I can't listen to you right now, I'm, I'm praying. That's not what it's saying. To pray without ceasing is like to breathe without ceasing, right? It is an automatic function of our brain and our body. We are constantly, whether we realize it or not, breathing in and breathing out, inhaling and exhaling. And that is just what prayer is supposed to be like for the, for the believer. Listen, we so often think that the word amen means I'm all done now, amen, and we hang up the phone. Have you ever noticed that certain words take on certain, I don't know, certain connotations based on how we use them and the frequency with which we use them? Like when you're on the phone with somebody and you're getting ready to hang up and it's someone you love, so what do you always have to say before you hang up? I love you, right? Have you ever been on the phone with like your boss and accidentally said, I love, oh, sorry, man, no, I didn't mean, has, has that ever happened to you? Right, so why? Because that phrase, when we've got the phone to our ear, has, has started to mean not, I love you, which is what it should mean, but hey, we're done talking now. I have positive feelings regarding our conversation, so see you later. And that's what that's come to mean, right? Well, we treat amen the same way. What does amen mean? The word amen actually means one of a couple things, either that's very true or let it be so, right? It doesn't mean, see you later, God, I'm done talking to you now. But that's how we treat it. Listen, when you say amen, the prayer is not over. The prayer or our prayers are to be a continuous conversation that occurs between our spirit and the Lord. I had a pastor one time many, many years ago, Pastor Ron Vietti at Valley Bible Fellowship in Bakersfield, California. And from the pulpit one day, he says, you know, sometimes people ask me, Pastor Ron, do you spend a lot of time alone with God? And you know what they're asking. They're asking, you know, do you have a devotional time? Do you have a, a quiet time? Do you spend three hours a day in prayer? I mean, what's that like for you? That's what they were asking him. And he said, yeah, I spend a lot of time alone with God. Whenever you're not here, I'm alone with God, right? And that really should be our mentality. Wherever you are, God is with you. Now, if you had a dear and close friend with you, and that dear and close friend was with you all the time, all the time, everywhere you went, and, and it wasn't a bother, you were glad to have them there, okay? Would that conversation ever really end? Well, there might be times when you were quiet, but it's okay to be quiet in prayer. In fact, the scripture says, be still and know that I am God. So sometimes our silence and the stillness of our hearts and minds before the Lord is a perfect prayer because it's what's needed in that moment as we sit at the feet of the Lord. But that conversation that we're to have with God is not to end just because we get up off our knees and say amen and walk out the door. As we're driving down the road, when someone cuts us off, we could say, Lord, did you see what they just did? That is a far better reaction than some that many of you have. I guarantee it. So that conversation with God is something that is to be continuous and purposeful in our lives. So what kinds of prayer 
are we to have when we talk about all prayer and supplication? Well, there is secret prayer. That's the prayer that we pray in our closet away from everyone else and away from the world. There's, there's public prayer as we pray together in public places. Listen, if I'm walking through Target one day and I run across somebody that, that I know or maybe somebody who's having a hard time and I look at them and I say, hey man, are you doing all right? And they're like, no man, I'm having a really rough day. Would you please pray for me? And they're thinking, would you please pray for me like later in your room when you pray? I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I'll pray for you. Let's pray. What are we praying about? You know, there is, I love that song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. You remember it from a decade or three ago? Let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray everywhere and every way, every moment of the day, it is the right time. Amen? For the Father above, he is looking down with love and he wants to hear our hearts. So let us pray. Listen, there's not a wrong place to pray. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a wrong way to pray. And Jesus said it, you know, like the Pharisees who'd stand out on the street corners and make their prayers loud so that all men may hear them. Well, that's not prayer. That, that, that's, that's proclamation. That's saying, hey, yeah, look at me. I'm praying. That's not what it's about. But that doesn't mean that we can't stop in the produce aisle at Target and lift up one another's needs in prayer if that's where we happen to be. You see, the thing is, is if you ask me to pray for you, and I say, sure, I'll pray for you. I'm a human being with a very fallible mind and things fall out as easily as they fall in. And I might forget to pray with you or for you. But if you say, hey, will you pray for me? And I say, yeah, let's pray right now. Guess what? I didn't forget. We just prayed. Amen. So when someone asks you for prayer or says that they need prayer, pray. Just pray right then, right there. Lift them up to the Lord. Another thing that I want us to recognize is a common misconception, and I don't think it's present here so much, but I've seen it in some circles, so I want to address it. Some people think that prayer is this rote thing, this repeated thing that is just this, this phrase that we say, you don't have to take them away. We don't mind a little baby crying every once in a while. It proves that somebody's awake out there. So, so the point that I'm trying to make is, is when we pray, it is to be a conversation with God. We're talking to the Lord, just as we would talk to someone that was sitting right there in the room with us, right? But we have this tendency to, to want to formulize prayer. I mean, when, we, when little kids are praying, what is it? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep and so forth and so on. Or, or the ever-famous, God is great, God is good, thank you, God, for all this food, right? Or as Francis Chan, I heard him say once, he says, growing up in an Asian household, they had a slightly different take on it. He said, God is great, God is nice, thank you, God, for all this rice. Now, that, not my words, that was Francis Chan, I'm just quoting him. So we have these rote prayers, right, that we just repeat. And I remember one time when I was going through training to, to start my job with AT&T, uh, there was this long period of training, and, and you got to know your fellow trainees really well, and it had come out through some conversations that I was a believer. I wasn't actively in the ministry. Well, I guess I was in youth ministry at that time. But uh, one of my coworkers was going through a tough time. And, and I remember her saying to me, so, hey, listen, I'm going through this situation with my, 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 my life and, and this is what's happening. And do you have a good prayer for that? And I'm like, okay, wait a second. What do you, what do you mean? You know, you know, like, do you have a prayer book? You can point me to what I should pray over. See, people have this misconception that, that, these, that prayer is like some formula that we apply 
And it's not. It's not some rote script. It's not like the Pledge of Allegiance, right? It's prayer. It's a conversation. And so we, we have secret prayer. We have public prayer. We have personal, family, and corporate prayer when we pray together and when we pray alone. In other words, there's no wrong time to pray. But when he says all prayer, what does he mean? All prayer and supplication. Well, he's implying that there are all different kinds of prayer and there are all different kinds of praying. And I would suggest that all of these different kinds of prayer and praying should find their place in the life of the believer. We should have times of secret prayer. When you go into your closet or into your war room and you lift up and intercede for people. You should have times of corporate prayer when we come together as a congregation and pray. There should be times of familial prayer where you gather your family, maybe around the dinner table, guys, right? And you lift up the name of Jesus and you carry your concerns and your cares to him. Jesus wants to know what's going on in your life. He wants to hear from you and he wants to engage with you and to give you the power that you need to fight the battles that come against you in this life. But what are some of the different kinds of prayer that that we should engage in and that we should include in our prayer life? Well, one is adoration. And I like to begin prayer with adoration. Adoration. What is adoration? It is worshiping God and recognizing God for who he is. And I've got some examples here that I want to share with you. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4 for a beautiful example of adoration. This from the lips of none other than King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon the very man who had destroyed the temple and carried Israel away captive. He went through a time in his life where the Lord humbled him, where the Lord caused him to recognize that he was not sufficient in and of himself, that it was actually God who ruled and reigned in the affairs of men. And he spent a period of seven years where he was basically out of his mind, living like an animal, chained to a tree, eating grass his nails becoming like talons and his hair like feathers as he was out in the elements for such a long time. And finally, after seven years, he came back into his right mind. The Lord restored him and actually put him back on the throne. And this chapter of the book of Daniel is his story. Well, it culminates here in in verse 34 and on. And he says this, at the end of the time, the time of his insanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, I'm going to qualify something I said a moment ago because I want you to recognize that you have tools that are available to you to teach you how to pray if prayer is something that seems foreign to you. We are to treat prayer as a conversation. But even when teaching English in the high school, 
there are certain tools that we use to help our students learn how to do what it is that we want them to do or how to write what it is we want them to write. And one of those things is called sentence stems. Anybody ever hear of sentence stems? It's where basically they give you a phrase that starts off your sentence and then you carry the idea on your own from there. Well, there's nothing wrong with taking the scriptures and taking the prayers that we find in the scriptures and using them as a springboard into our own prayer life. So if, 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 if praying a prayer of adoration to God is not something that comes naturally to you and you need a little help to get moving in that direction, you could start with a prayer like this one. And here's what I would do. I would simply change it from third person to second person, as it were. Reading from the middle part of verse 34, I would say, I bless you, O Most High, and praise and honor you, Lord God, who lives forever. For your dominion is an everlasting dominion, and your kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are are reputed as nothing, and you do, Lord, according to your will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain your hand, O God, or say to you, what have you done? And now that I've gotten going, I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to say, Lord, you have moved in my life in such tremendous ways. Lord, you have glorified yourself by revealing your love to me and by revealing your son, Jesus Christ, to me, who died for my sins. Lord, I praise you, for you alone are worthy. You alone are holy. You alone are all powerful. And Lord, you alone know me. You alone love me as none other. Do you see how you take what the scripture begins and then you extend on that and you make that your own? Okay, that is, it's a model for prayer. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. He told them, when you pray, pray in this manner. He didn't say, when you pray, pray these specific words. But he gave us the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, as a model prayer that we can then build on in our own understanding. Um, One of my favorite times in the school year, and this is going to sound silly, is star testing, right? And there are many reasons that I don't like star testing, but one of the reasons that I do like star testing is that when I'm administering a test, there is absolutely nothing besides administering that test that I am allowed to do. I can't grade papers. I can't be on my computer. I can't be doing lesson plans or preparing for an upcoming unit that I'm going to be doing. I can't be doing special education paperwork or going over my folders or making phone calls or returning emails. I can't do any of that stuff. My job when I'm in that scenario is to walk around the room and look to make sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing and not doing what they're not supposed to be doing. And that's all I'm allowed to do. So you know what I'm doing while I do that? I'm praying. I'm speaking to the Lord on behalf of the students who are there in the room with me, on behalf of all of you. It is a time of about five hours where I got nothing to do but pray. And so what do I do? I use the Lord's Prayer. And I go something like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I stop there and then I talk to God about that topic. Lord, you are awesome. Lord, you are so good. Lord, thank you for being my Father. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, help me. And each of these doesn't last just a few seconds. I stay on each of those topics for like a couple times around the classroom. You see what I'm saying? But each segment of that prayer becomes not the prayer itself, but the heading for the prayer that follows it. 
And so it is a model or a design that aids me and assists me in praying and in conversing with the Lord. So we have adoration that we just read in Daniel chapter four. Now we come to confession. Well, what is confession? Confession should be a part of our prayer life and confession is when we acknowledge our sin to God and tell him of our need for him. 1 John 1.19 is probably one of the best known verses on this topic in which John writes, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have been given permission to confess our sins to God. Let's look at a beautiful example of a prayer of confession in Psalms chapter 32. Turn there with me if you will. Psalms 32, it's a Psalm of David. In Psalm 32, David writes, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, and the word blessed means, oh, how happy, amen? Blessed is the man, or oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. So this is the formula for us right here. We are, when we are confessing our sins to God, to acknowledge our sin before God. In other words, to recognize that the attitude, action, thought, or behavior in question is not acceptable to God, that it is wrong, that it is sinful. You see, so often in our society today, people don't want to acknowledge sin as sin. They say, oh, well, I'm only human, as though humanity in and of itself were some sort of an excuse. To say that I'm only human is to say that I'm only a sinner. It's redundant. Of course, I'm only a sinner but I'm a sinner who is saved by grace. He says in verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you. This is the Lord speaking back to him. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous and shout for joy all you upright in heart. He starts as a sinner and he ends as a righteous man. Why? Because his sins have been forgiven. Amen? And the same is available to us when we make our confession to the Lord. So we have the prayer of adoration. We have the prayer of confession. We have also the prayer 
of thanksgiving. In Philippians, Paul would go on to write, be anxious or worried or torn up over nothing, but in all things, not for all things, but in all things, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests known unto the Lord and he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So thanksgiving or showing our gratitude and our appreciation to the Lord and celebrating that which he has already done for us and that which he is going to do is and should be a part of all prayer that we engage in as we are armed for battle. So let's look for an example of thanksgiving prayer. Turn with me to the 100th Psalm, very short Psalm, only five verses, but absolutely beautiful in its content and its attitude. In it, the psalmist writes, make a joyful shout to the Lord, you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Wasn't it awesome to do that this morning? Just what an awesome time of coming into his presence with singing. Verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. So what do you have that you owe to God? Everything. There is no capability, no talent, no ability, no intelligence, no giftedness, no possession, no blessing that you have that you did not receive from him. James tells us this when he says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Amen. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So acknowledging who we are, here's what we are to do. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Amen. What a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. But now we come after adoration and confession and thanksgiving, we come to what we often think of as prayer, and that is supplication and intercession. I like to think of these two things, supplication and intercession, though they are two somewhat distinct attributes of prayer, I like to put them in one category uh, because they are making my requests known to God. Okay, supplication, I like to think of as those requests that I make on my own behalf and intercession, I like to think of as those requests I make on the behalf of others, right? But these all fall under that category of things I'm asking God to do or to give me or to help me with. They are my, my supplications. And so supplications are to be a part of our prayer. And Paul said so in Ephesians chapter six. And I'll read verse 18 again. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication. But all prayer precedes supplication. In other words, before I bring all my requests to God, it is appropriate for me to adore him. It is appropriate for me to confess my sins before him. It is appropriate for me to give thanks to him so that as I enter into the supplications that I am requesting from him, I can have the right heart and the right head. 
adoration, confession, and thanksgiving get my head in line with my heart as I try to uh, get tuned in to what the Lord wants because I want to pray in accordance with his will, okay? If I'm praying in accordance just with my own will and not with his will, I have no guarantee that I'm going to receive what I ask for because when we pray, we are to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if I expect to have the power of the Holy Spirit, and if I expect to be able to pray in the name of Jesus, then I need to be asking for things that are in keeping with the attitude of the Spirit and with the mind of Christ. And so adoration, confession, and thanksgiving prepare my heart and mind so that I can make appropriate supplication to the Father. Now, we find a command from the Lord Jesus Christ himself pertaining to our supplications in Matthew chapter seven. So turn there with me, if you will, Matthew seven. In Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse seven through verse 11, we find these words. Jesus is telling those who are listening to him, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Amen? Ask, seek, knock. But here's the thing. We are to do so with diligence and with persistence because the, the, the tense of the Greek in these instances is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking until the answer that you are seeking is revealed. Amen? Jesus goes on to say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Amen? Now, I will say there are times that I need God to say no. There is a, uh, <laughs> there's an aphorism. I believe it was from poor Richard's almanac. And it says that a man who gets half his wishes doubles his trouble, right? If you got half of what you wished for, you would double the trouble that you have. Garth Brooks, I think it was, put it another way. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Even country music gets it right sometimes. Well, a broken clock's right twice a day. So, so there's some truth there. Sometimes... I really think I know what I want and I'm asking God and when God doesn't give it to me, I want to stamp my feet and cry and say, why, Lord, why? And he says, well, because I know better than you do. You see, sometimes God says no and sometimes no is what is best for us. And so he gives good things. And you know what that says to me? That says to me this. If I ask for something in faith, believing that I will receive it, and I go to God and I persistently pray for this thing, whatever it may be, and I do not receive it. Does that mean that God failed me? No, it means that God knew that if I got that, it would not be good for me. 
And so I can accept a no from God and know that it's in my best interest. You see, sometimes God says yes, and sometimes God says no. As a parent, my attitude has long been one that I would like to think is in keeping with God's purpose, and that is this. I say yes when I can, and I say no when I have to. And I think God does the same thing with us. He says yes when it's good for us, but sometimes he needs to say no. And there's another option. Sometimes he says, not yet, right? Sometimes it's yes, Sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's not yet. Because you see, I live in the here and now. I live in this moment, and I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and why I want it. But what I should really want is what he wants for me, when he wants it for me, and the way he wants it for me, and why he wants it for me. Why does he want it for me? Because he loves me, because he's good, and I can trust him, amen? One more word on supplication and we will actually be done for the day. I'm not going to keep you much longer. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, as I was preparing this message last night, um, you know, sometimes I've been asked the question, how do you know when you're done preparing for a message? And I usually say, well, when I've preached it. (laughs) You know, I'm not done preparing for it until I've preached it. But last night was a little different when I was studying and preparing my outline. I, I knew when I was done. And the reason that I knew when I was done was because the topic was so large, there's no way I could cover it all. And so I had to come to terms with the fact that this was going to have a set point at which it would end, but that there would be a whole lot more to learn, know, and experience that goes beyond it. So what I want to encourage you to do is not wait for me to teach you the rest of what you need to know, but get out there and start to learn through experience. The best way to pray, or rather the best way to learn to pray is not to read books on prayer, not to listen to sermons about prayer, not to ask other people for prayer. The best way to learn to pray is to pray. See, you can read books about how to ride a bike. You can watch videos about how to ride a bike. You can listen to people tell you how to ride a bike, but you're never gonna learn how to ride a bike until you get out there and ride the bike. So you wanna learn about prayer, go pray. And start right now, start today to apply these principles in your life. So this last passage that we're gonna turn to this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're going to go past that, of course, but starting in verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore, I exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now we're gonna go on from there, but before I can go on, I have to go back because when I see the word therefore, I need to know what it's there for. So what are we basing this command, Paul? What is this command based on? Well, uh, for context, we'll go back to verse 15 of the previous chapter. And in verse 15, Paul writes, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I want to pause right there for a moment. Let us 
never forget the purpose of Christ's coming. The purpose of Christ's coming was to save you from your sins, to save me from mine. The Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made mistakes. We've all demonstrated our own wickedness in one way or another. And there was absolutely no way for us to receive forgiveness for our sins apart from the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins, for your sins and for my sins. And that is the cornerstone of our faith, that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross to pay the price for the things that you and I have done wrong that he was buried and that on the third day he rose from the dead and that in Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. See, that's where it all starts. Again, Paul writing says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners. And I'm the biggest one there is. And each one of us can say that. Each one of us can say with certainty that I am the chief of sinners. Why? Because my sins are the ones that I'm the most familiar with. And your sins are the ones you're most familiar with. We are sinners in need of salvation. Verse 16, he goes on. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is saying, listen, friends, I'm an example of just how powerful the grace of God is. You know, Paul might have the title, actually. He, he might have been a bigger sinner than every one of us. Maybe I'm wrong to say that we're all the chief of sinners. Maybe Paul was, because I'm going to tell you something. Not a person in this room ever dragged people away in chains to throw them in prison for their faith and wanted them to be executed for it. You see, we've done our own executing in our hearts and in our minds through our hate and our anger and our wrath and our unforgiveness. So really, we're just as guilty as Paul was. But Paul's point was this. Listen, I persecuted the church. I was an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. I was trying to make people blaspheme by getting them to deny their Lord and Savior at the peril of their lives and their freedom. And he said, listen, if God could save me through Jesus Christ, then he can save you. He said, I am an example He says, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering. In other words, all of his patience as a pattern of those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, 
to the king eternal. See how he's slipping into adoration here? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying, man, God is so awesome. Thinking about his own sinfulness and the revelation of God's grace in his life moved Paul to impassioned adoration and prayer. And thinking about what Christ did for us should do the same thing in our hearts and in our lives. Verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Do you see how we've slipped back into military terminology here? Listen, friends, you have received the full armor of God. You have in your hands the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith with the helmet of salvation upon your head. You have been equipped for the battle into your hands and into your care have been placed weapons of a spiritual nature that are powerful for the pulling down of strongholds. God has entrusted that to you. And so Paul says, listen, By these things, you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, with some having rejected, which some having rejected concerning the faith of, have suffered shipwreck. He's, listen, there are those who have wandered from the faith. Verse 20 says, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In other words, sometimes when people wander away, they have to suffer discipline in order that they might come back. Therefore, because we are engaged in a great battle, because we are to wage the good warfare of which Paul speaks. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and presidents and congressmen and senators and mayors and principals, and parents, and everybody who's in authority. That's what's being said here. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wait a second now. My my Calvinist friends might have a little problem with this verse. Which men does God desire to be saved? Some men, most men, many men, a few men. No, he says all men. God's desire is for the salvation of everybody. Now, will everybody be saved? No, because in his sovereignty, God has given us a choice. He has given us free will to either accept or reject the free gift of grace and mercy that he has offered. For this is good and acceptable, verse three says, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Not Mary, not the saints, not that guy with the collar around his neck. No, one mediator between God and man the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. A ransom for who? All. 
to be testified of in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So where are we again? We're right back where we began. His desire is that we would pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands in prayer and supplication to the Lord. Because you know what? Just like Moses, when our hands are up, we're going to experience victory. Amen. When our hands are lifted to God in prayer and supplication, then the armies of God will move forward and conquer the enemy in our lives. We have been called to pray. Now, Paul, he said, and pray for me. While you're praying, pray for me. Pray what, Paul? What do you need prayer for? You're in prison. Do you want us to pray for your early release? No. Paul, you're in prison. Do you want us to pray that that you'd get enough food each day? No. He says, pray for me that I would have the boldness to speak the words that I am to speak. Pray for me that I might have the boldness to proclaim the gospel even in the depths of this prison. Amen? The point of the spear in terms of our prayer, the tip of the sword with which we make war is that we would pray for the furtherance of the gospel. Amen, that we would pray that God would put into the mouths of his people the message of his heart that sinners might come to salvation. Amen, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this beautiful book of Ephesians. Thank you for all of the gifts that you have given us. Thank you that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God. Thank you that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But Lord, thank you that we are your workmanship. You created us, you made us and you created us in Christ Jesus and you've prepared in advance works for us to do that we might walk in them and bring glory to your name. Lord, help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Help us to allow our lives to reflect the reality of our position in Christ Jesus as righteous saints who have been forgiven for our sins, who have been given the gift of eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to walk and to conduct ourselves in a manner manner that is worthy of that calling. And Lord, equip us with your armor the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Lord, let these be our daily garments and teach us to pray, to engage the enemy, to wage that good warfare that you have enlisted us to fight because Lord, the battle has already been won and you are a victorious king in whose army we are marching. Lord, prepare our hearts for the battle. 
Be our shield and our buckler. Be our great reward. Glorify yourself in and through us as we present the truth of your gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.